We are doing a little mic swap there, so thank you for your patience. Children, you are dismissed to go back to uh, children's time with Jonathan and Christy. And the rest of you, I'm going to ask if you would to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you're new with us this morning, it is a pleasure to have you. It is a joy for you to uh, be with us, for us to be with you this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 8, if you did not bring one, there's one right in front of you. But we are a church that believes in the authority of Scripture, and so we go verse by verse through God's Word, and we've been in the middle of Romans for a while now. This morning, we're going to be looking at a larger chunk than usual. And so if you would, locate Romans chapter 8, verse 18. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27 this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And this morning we're going to be talking about suffering. We've been in a series now for over a month. And in Romans 8, we have dealt with the assurance of our justification that those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are acquitted forever. The judge makes a ruling. Sins are forgiven. Righteousness is handed over through the work of Jesus Christ. We looked at the assurance of our regeneration, that is, our new life, that we are no longer lost, enslaved to sin, rebels, but we have been given a new identity in Christ. We are new creations. That went forward to the assurance of justification, whereby the assurance of sanctification. No, just, what, yeah, just, what is it? Sanctification was next. Sorry, I'm getting confused. And how the Lord continues to work within believers to make them more like Jesus Christ, to make us more and more into the image of Christ. And then last week we dealt with the assurance of adoption, that the Lord has brought us into his family, that he loves us, that we are his beloved children. And today we're dealing with the assurance of his presence within us, the assurance of his ongoing indwelling presence to assist us to intercede for us in all of our, here's the magic word today, suffering. So I don't know about you, I'm not sure exactly where everyone is right now and and what this week entailed. But I have to imagine that every single one of us knows suffering in one way or another, that this week we have been touched with elements of suffering from one degree to another. Think about this real quick. Maybe it's physical suffering. Okay, As we get older, our bodies get broken down, and we know, we learn, we experience what it means to suffer physically. But you don't have to be old. This world is so broken that you can be young and you can suffer physically. I had one of my students uh, this week uh, that I met. You know, classes began a week ago and she came in late. She's suffering because she she just had brain surgery, okay? And and she's a college student. So you don't have to be old, right? Uh, We all know what it means to suffer physically. But not just physical suffering, okay? We have relational suffering, Some of us are really struggling in in some relationships with family, right? Kids, parents, coworkers, right? Your boss. 
There's suffering that happens on a weekly basis, just as we deal with other people. Mental, mental suffering, right? Emotional suffering, depression, anger, just frustration. We live in a broken world where we are going to suffer. But what Paul communicates this morning is that our suffering is not purposeless. Okay, I want you to think about that. Our suffering is not purposeless. Our suffering has a purpose. Paul will go on in the next week's sermon to talk about that purpose in a little bit more detail. But our suffering, today we're going to see our suffering points us to a later future reality. Our suffering and our current suffering points us to our future glory in Jesus Christ. When you look at uh, just the, 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 the springboard verse for today's message, if you would go back to verse 16, or verse 17, I'm sorry. Paul in last week's message said, if we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is talking about the doctrine of adoption, how he has adopted those who put their faith into him as, as, as his children. If children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if, look at that conditional statement, if what? How do you know you're a child of God? There's a condition. If we suffer with him. All those who have been called into God's family, folks, will suffer. Do you believe that? This isn't channel 21 or whatever channel it is nowadays where, you know, we're preaching prosperity. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he calls you to himself, we will suffer. And then he goes on for a purpose so that we may also be glorified with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And what Paul's going to unravel today in our message is that our suffering is purposeful in that it changes us from the inside out. The external suffering and the internal suffering changes us, transforms us. He uses all of it as an instrument for change. That you and I would become more like Jesus while we walk this earth, that we would look less like our old selves and we would look more like him. But one day, folks, one day when we get to heaven, all right, another name for that, old school Southerners, right? Like when we get to glory, we will be fully glorified. We will be fully changed. We will be fully redeemed. Here he's going to argue we will be fully adopted without sin, without suffering. But in the meantime, we endure, we wait, we hope in the midst of our suffering. Look at me, look with me at verse 18. This is our passage this morning, verses 18 through 27. For I consider, Paul's saying, for I consider, this word can be translated calculate. It's a mathematical term. It means that you have to kind of pull back and you actually have to think about this. 
right? It's not casual. It requires some thought. When we suffer, what happens? We just move on. When we suffer, we don't want to stop and grieve. We just like bury our heads or we just get active into something else. Am I wrong? Our natural tendency is to avoid suffering, avoid the pain, so we cover up the pain with activity. I don't know what that activity is. It's different for everyone. It could be reading a book. It could be watching a Netflix show. It could be crafting. It could be going to the gym. And instead of mourning, instead of grieving, instead of taking the time to sit in God's presence and to listen and to receive, our natural, sinful nature is to try to save ourselves, getting into heaven level, but save ourselves from the pain and the suffering of this moment by just doing something else, ignoring the problem, stuffing it. Don't don't dare go to counseling about it because then you'd have to calculate. You'd have to deal with it. Paul says, for I consider... I take the time to think about this. I deal with the pain that the suffering of this present time, the suffering, excuse me, he didn't say suffering, he said what? The sufferings. This is plural, right? It's not just one suffering. It's like a host of sufferings, yeah? All right, so, so in those dark times in our lives, guess what, folks? It's usually not one thing, right? It could be a real big thing, but often our suffering is multifaceted. You know, we're dealing with physical pain, but guess what? We're really messed up, jacked up emotionally in that physical pain, aren't we? When we're, when we're physically uh, messed up, right, we don't want to deal with people. So we isolate, we silo, and then we suffer relationally. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. What is Paul saying? Suffering stinks. Does anyone want to suffer? It's horrible. Again, physically, mentally, emotional, relationally. All of that equals your spirituality. This is what he's saying. In the, in the scales, right? In the balance scales of life, guess what? That suffering is momentary. Eternity is forever. Now, I know that doesn't really help us, right, in our emotions. But I think that's why Paul says you got to calculate. The emotions can, like, swallow you, can't they? Paul's saying, like, stiff arm the emotions for just a little bit, you know. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit to help you with those emotions right now in the present. But, but logically, mentally, the truths, the promises of God, grasp those, hold on to those. Because your momentary suffering is just that. There will come a day, a beautiful and glorious day, where all wrongs will be made right, where there will be, as we started the service out, no more tears, no more sorrow. 
our momentary afflictions will cease to exist. All of our mental issues, all of our emotional issues, all of our physical issues will disappear in the revealing of God's glory. So this word revealing is that apocalyptical word. We saw this in Revelation, right? It's the unveiling. Right now, our, our eyes are veiled to it. But there's going to come a day where the eyes of everyone, believers and non-believers, their eyes will be open and they will behold the glory of God in front of their eyes, right? You and I will see our Savior face to face in all of his glory, but also you and I will see the transformation that he has accomplished within us when we get to heaven, the full redemption of our souls. And so, yeah, guys, look, this world right now is hard and it is full of suffering. And sometimes we can't see past today. But Paul says, calculate, stop, think, reflect, get your mind around this truth. Remember the promise that one day, that one day will be forever. I consider the sufferings this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Why? Verse 19. Now he's going to unpack this. Verse 18 is like our thesis statement today. Verse 19, he's going to unpack this sucker. Why? Because, ready? Verse 19. Because the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. That your present suffering and your present glory is bigger than you are. That your present suffering and your future glory is encompassed in not just your life, but the lives of every other person and creation itself. That it's not just about you. You know, I don't know about you, but when I suffer, the world revolves around me, doesn't it? Like, I am full-blown man-cold all the time in our house. And Christy has to, like, pamper me, and woe is me. And, you know, like, everything just revolves around us when we're hurting. Paul's saying our suffering, folks, is bigger than ourselves. That our suffering has, God has a plan for our suffering individually, but God has a plan for our individual suffering that affects his church, that affects this world, that affects his revealing, the revealing of his future glory. And it's summed up in creation that it's not just us as humans, but all of his creation suffers. All of his creation suffers. He says again, verse, eight, uh, verse 19, for the creation is waiting as, just as much as you are. But the creation is eagerly awaiting with anticipation for this coming day when God's sons and daughters will be revealed, where the fulfillment of all of his promises will take place and the full glory of his redemptive purposes from the very beginning will take place. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's Son to be revealed. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Isn't that a mouthful? All right, let's talk about this. First, he talks about creation being subjected to futility. Verse 20. You guys remember Ecclesiastes, right? Um, vanity, vanity, vanity. Everything is meaningless. That's what this word futility is, is uh, speaking about. That we look at the world around us and it's just futile. When we read the news articles, the headlines, when we hear about this politician doing this or that politician doing that, this teacher saying or indoctrinating this way, I feel like I'm picking on teachers today. I don't mean to. When, when you know, just this world is upside down in, in its deceit, all right? And we hear all these different things coming out of people's mouths or, or entities' mouths. Paul's saying it's all futile. It's all foolishness. This word fealty can be uh, translated emptiness. It's empty. It can be translated purposelessness. It is also um, meaningless. Creation was subjected, in other words, subordinated to what? Again, verse 20, subjected to this state of being, futility, foolishness. He, co- he goes on, he says, by whom though? Not willingly, it didn't enter into this willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So the question is, who subjected creation? How did creation get to be this way? How did it get to become so futile? How come things aren't working like they should? There's, there's three options here, all right? Let's walk through them. First, we can argue that it was Adam's fault, and he's the one who subjected it. But subjugation infers authority, a place of authority, and Adam didn't have authority over God. We can argue Satan subjected it, but again, Satan did not have authority over God. Who is the sovereign creator of everything? Who is the sovereign ruler of everything, church? God. So I think the best answer here is the Lord himself did this. Now, there was sin that had cause in it, but ultimately it was the Lord's ruling to subject creation to this frailty. Look with me on the screen, Genesis 3.17. Because of him who subjected it. Who subjected it? God himself did this. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Who subjected creation to futility? It was God himself in his judgment. This affected Adam and Eve first off, their grandkids, and guess what? You know, thousands of years later, you and I are dealing, we're, we're reaping what our grandparents sowed. Everything that we are experiencing today 
is by the Lord's authority because of sin. Now, look at this. God made a judgment, but the good news is even in that judgment way back when, God also gave us a promise of deliverance. Okay, so he subjected it. He basically said, you don't want to listen. Here are the consequences. But in his mercy and his grace, he still had a plan for for redemption. So in verse 20, not not willingly because of him who subjected it, but listen, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Paul says, though, there was hope on that day. As much as the Lord judged creation, guess what? He also gave a message of hope. Do you remember that? We just looked at 17 through 19. Look with me at verse 15. Preceding this curse is this promise of blessing. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity. All right, that's a fancy word for, you know, war. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who is he talking to, church? Satan. So this is this pronouncement on Satan, this judgment on Satan, but it has good news for us. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, but he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so this, this disguised, mysterious pronouncement had bearing for the good news that you and I celebrate this morning. This single verse is is what many scholars refer to as the proto-evangelion. What's evangelion, church? The good news, the gospel. So proto, what is that? We're all learning today. Proto? First, the first gospel proclamation. That this was the prophecy, this was the promise, that there was going to come a Messiah who would be struck but who would not die and who would strike who? Satan, who would die. That our Savior would be struck on the heel, but he would not be struck a death blow on the head. Instead, Satan would be struck the death blow. That the Lord judged creation, but he had a plan of salvation, a plan of redemption for creation that involved the coming of Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. Paul accents this with the word hope. That there was always a hope. That there was always a hope of deliverance from our earthly suffering. Again, I don't know where you've been this week. How was your week last week, right? Was it full of suffering? Questioning? Frustration? Anger? Depression? Anxiety? How much did you suffer this week? And in that suffering, how much did you hope? Where was your hope? Where did you place your hope? Did you even place your hope somewhere? Or again, did you just cruise on in life, trying to ignore everything that was assaulting you? Paul says there was always a hope. 
And this morning, Paul says there is a hope. There's a hope. There's always been a hope. And there is a hope today for our suffering church. He continues on that this is going to happen in the glorious unveiling of, of the children of Christ. In verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul uses a metaphor here. He compares our suffering to that of a, ch- a woman's childbirth. Right? We've all been there. Most of us. A lot of us. Waiting room or in the room. And mom is pushing or the doctor is slicing and it's scary. And it's, there's screaming and there's yelling and there's frustration. And guess what? There's pain, right? Now Carrie's judging me because she's like, what do you know of pain? But you know, I understand the gist of it. Okay. It's painful, right? But on the other side of it is what? Joy. That, that there's this metaphor of, of painful labor, painful suffering, momentary. Momentary, right? And on the other side should be joy. Now, stay with me. Metaphors, every single metaphor can break down, right? Yes? Like, any given metaphor doesn't always work 100%. Because I know there's some women in this room who are suffering from the loss of a child in childbirth. And so this is not what that's saying. You know, this is a metaphor explaining momentary affliction, momentary suffering versus... Joy. But the, but the whole theme is suffering, right? And, and even in, in momentary suffering or long-lasting suffering of the life of the child, Paul still is reassuring us that there is hope. I, I don't know who has, I don't know who hasn't, but there's still hope in the loss. Because one day, our hope Our hope is looking forward to one day. Where we will be glorified, but we will also be reunited. And so listen, the main point. Your momentary suffering stinks. Whatever it is. God is bigger than any specific suffering that you're pointing at that you're thinking about right now and the point is he's bigger than it and it will not last forever you might have to um, be triggered by some things for the rest of your life it might come back in and you know rear its ugly head and and hurt you again but there will be a day there will be a day where there will be no more suffering. There will be a day where our joy will be complete. He says that on this day, we will be fully adopted. We will be fully redeemed. 
that our hearts wait eagerly for that day. It's the same phrase he used that creation waits eagerly, but you and I wait eagerly, don't we? Don't we yearn for that day where we will experience our full adoption into his family, that we will experience the full redemption of our souls? You see, the hard thing to grasp in what the Bible teaches is it says we're saved, amen? But yet it says we're still being saved. And then it says one day we will be fully saved. So there's this reality of being saved but not being fully saved. It's called the already, but the not what? Yet. That we have the guarantee, we have the deposit that our heart's been made alive, that we are new creatures, and yet we haven't been fully remade, fully transformed, fully redeemed. But there will come a day in our hearts long for this. We wait for this. We yearn for this when we will be fully redeemed, fully adopted. I mean, right now we're adopted. The paperwork's signed, okay? We get to see some of our family members, but in heaven, we'll be face-to-face with our Father. In heaven, we will be with the full family reunion. There, here's the last part of this section. In verse 24, Paul addresses the problem for us still. Some of you are pushing back on this. So he addresses something here. 24, now in this hope, we were saved. The hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ and his work for us. In this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Paul is addressing the elephant in the room. Um, you know, waiting stinks. That at the end of the day, all of this boils down still to hope. That he hasn't put it in front of our face yet. One day he will. In the meantime, guess what? We have to hope. And I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I'm not a patient person, especially when I'm suffering, right? But the word is hope. That you and I have a hope in the meantime. That as crazy as the world is, that as broken as our society is, that is frustrated and scared to death at times, as, as hard, as much as our heart, like, just feels like it's beating out here, we have a hope. Because let me ask you a question. What other hope do you got? What other hope does this world offer? than the hope of the one who has risen from death and who has said, I can take all of you with me. Again, it's our faith in the Lord Jesus that if he defeated Satan, if he defeated death, if he defeated sin, then what could he not defeat in our own lives but the answer is hope and waiting how do you get through it i don't have a magic 
want to just make you feel better. But these words should encourage us, right? That He is with us, that's the next section. And that we have a hope for the future. What's the difference between hope and faith? Okay, I've been thinking about this this week. Why does Paul say hope and why does he not say faith? And what's the difference between the two? This is the way I've been thinking about it. Hope is just kind of like, well, I hope and you don't do anything though. Like there's nothing you can do. Your hands are tied. So I'm hoping that he steps in and does something. You guys tracking? Whereas faith, faith is not just standing and waiting. Faith is active, right? We talk about this. Faith is demonstrative. Faith is accompanied by works. And so why did Paul use hope instead of faith? Because again, in our suffering, so often, there's nothing we can do except for wait. We trust Him, but we have to wait. In verse 26, he gives us another truth here. The first is we're going to suffer. The second is we will be fully glorified and redeemed. But third, until then, in verses 26 and 27, he argues until then, you and I have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us. Until that day that our hope is anchored in, until that day, we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit, God Himself, indwelling within us and interceding for us. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me. Paul closes out here with these words in the same way. The Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. Do you believe that? The Spirit, God Himself, indwelling within us, helps us in our weaknesses. Well, what are you, what, what what is He referring to, Scott, when He says weaknesses? Pick your poison. I mean, a lack of faith in that moment? A lack of strength and vigor in your body? A lack of patience and confidence in your mind, calmness and peace in your heart, loneliness. These are God's words. Do you believe them? In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. Guys, when we are suffering, we are not alone. One of the ways He helps us in our weaknesses is through the body of Christ as we care and tend for one another. If you're suffering, if I can just preach a little mini-sermon real quick. Like, if you're suffering, please don't isolate. Please don't silo. If you're suffering, the way in which God cares for us is through His church, through His brothers and sisters. And, And so, if you're holding back, if you're clamming up, if you're not sharing these hurts and struggles, then you're basically saying you can carry it all by yourself. I think that's futile. 
I think it just weighs you down and makes you unhealthy. Open your mouth. Share the load with your brother and sister. That is one of the ways the Holy Spirit rescues us, delivers us, frees us, helps us. But he keeps going. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Why? Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. So we're suffering. What's our response? Hope. Well, that stinks. Waiting. But with the presence of the Holy Spirit, who intercedes for us. That we don't have the power, we don't have the ability, we don't have the capability, we don't have the wisdom. So often in the midst of our suffering, we don't know what to say, what to do, how to even bring this topic up to the Lord. Our hurt is so engulfing that we don't even know how to talk to God about it. Have you ever been there? Give you two examples. One, mentioned this last week. You know, we had a, we had Mia in our home for two years and three quarters. Loved her, considered her our daughter, hoped, wished, desired to adopt her, but that wasn't up to us. That was up to the great state of Arizona. We loved her. We waited. We hoped. Couldn't do anything though. That was in God's hands, not the state's. So we prayed a lot. Guess what? We prayed like all the time. And what did we pray? What did we pray when it, as it concerned Mia? Did we pray, oh my gosh, Lord, please rip this child away from her family so we can have her? I, I didn't know how to pray. We wanted her, but do you pray? that she'd be taken from another family. That's like weird. We didn't pray that, but we did. But we didn't, but we did. And there's just a sense like we just prayed and we let our emotions out and our thoughts out and we let God sort that out. But we talked to him. We groaned, we yelled, we cried. And we just kept praying, trusting that he was hearing us through the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Because he is God. Trusting that he was honoring those prayers, directing those prayers, forming and shaping those prayers as we continued in it. I've talked about my health issues. I don't want to bore you again. But same thing. Will the Lord deliver me through this? Should I pray for that? Or is this what he wants? Is 